just the final verses of this chapter to look at. And that'll be verses 28 through 34. And then when you find that, if you would mind standing for the reading of God's word, I would appreciate that. Starting in verse 28, we find he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask his blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, we come before you first, uh, wanting to enter your course with praise and with thanksgiving. We are so grateful to be able to enjoy the many benefits that you have afforded to us. We want to acknowledge openly for the sound of those humans who are around us as well as those heavenly beings who are observing our behavior right now, that we join in with those who are in heaven to say we appreciate who you are and what you have done for us. We are supremely thankful for the mighty, powerful, awesome work that you have done through sending your son into the world. Lord Jesus, we appreciate you willingly giving your life on our behalf, and we thank you, God, for raising him from the dead so that we might have hope beyond that which has plagued humanity since the garden. We uh, acknowledge that you are necessary for us to be able to engage in these things. And so, Father, we ask humbly that you would minister to our hearts today from your word. Lord, if there is any spiritual interference which we cannot see or observe, would you arrest that now? Would you prevent that from keeping any of us from hearing, understanding, and applying your word in our lives? I pray that your spirit would bring about transformation, that he would work powerfully. And I thank you for the opportunity to join in what you are doing in the world. We request your presence and your, in the sense of working among us and in us. We ask these things, that you be glorified and exalted. And that if there is anyone, as Sister Rachel prayed earlier, that does not know you and is, has been, or is in the process of being drawn to you, that you would bring them to the point of faith today. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Now, had you been on the British coast back in 1845, you would have noticed 138 of England's finest soldiers board two ships. They were headed for the Arctic. Their mission? To chart a passageway between the Canadian Arctic and the Pacific Ocean. And they launched out under the leadership of Sir John Franklin. 
And John Franklin, as the captain of this expedition, hoped that this would be a turning point in Arctic exploration. And it was, but not for the reason that he had hoped, because this mission was a failure. Uh, and it was because of that that it became a turning point. Both ships never made it to their destination. All sailors, 138 of them, perished in the process of trying to find the way. When those who went to find out what happened followed, they quickly learned a lesson. And that lesson was this, that if you're going to take this type of trip, you need to be properly prepared for such a trip. And the reason why they came to that conclusion was because of what they noticed in the stores of the ship uh, and then took into account what had happened to those sailors. So they began to look among what they had found in the remains of the ship, and what they discovered was that uh, these two ships were more prepared for a Caribbean cruise than they were for an Arctic exploration. Uh, there was only uh, about a 12-day supply of coal to power uh, the steam engines of the two boats when they had initially decided that the trip would actually take two to three years. But what they lacked in fuel, they made up for in entertainment. There were some 1,200 books on the ship. Uh, there was an organ and piano on the ship. Uh, there was lots of things to entertain them. Uh, and they weren't even prepared with clothing. They had just ordinary clothes, nothing that would uh, help them to survive the, the frigid temperatures of the Arctic. Uh, but what was loaded was fine china, wonderful goblets to drink out of, place settings for every crewman, right? But, but nothing to prepare them for the harsh conditions that they were to face. And the question was, as they found them, what they ended up finding was just the remains. All that silverware was still there, crashed upon the shore, and next to it lay cannibalized, frozen sailors' bodies because they had made some poor choices in preparation for the journey. And I share this illustration with you for that very reason, because poor choices can have an impact in each one of our lives. Sometimes when we make a poor choice, it is the cost of an opportunity, something that we thought we had an opportunity to do. We missed that opportunity, and the door is closed. Sometimes it is the cost of income. We lose some finances as a result of a poor choice. Sometimes it's time lost, years, days, months of our lives that we can no longer recover. And sometimes, as in the case of this instance with Sir John Franklin's expedition, human lives are lost because of poor decisions. See, making right choices in life requires something, and that something is what I want to focus our time and attention on today. In the text that we have this week, we are now at the point in the story of Israel where the long-awaited reunion happens between the father and the son, Jacob and Joseph. We remember from previous weeks that Joseph has already uh, restored his relationship with his brothers. Uh, he's reconnected with them. The relationship has been repaired and restored, but still the father was lingering. And so in the text, what we see here is Joseph rushing out to meet his family as they have transitioned to the region of Egypt called Goshen. And that's the place where the family reunion is going to happen. And so Joseph can't wait to see his dad again. And so he uh, doesn't wait to, to, for, some, for his servant, at least as it appears in the text, to get his carriage or his chariot ready. He does it himself, and he rushes out to meet his dad. And what happens when he sees his dad, like any of us who misses a long-lost relative, 
He grabs onto his father. He won't let him go. And because he's so overwhelmed with emotion to see his father again, tears flow from his eyes. And he does that for a good long while. And Jacob, in seeing his son, has a sense of peace now. The world is right again. The son he loves before he thought he would never see again. He's seen, he's alive, he's doing well, and he's able to have a relationship with him. And so he says, life is great. I'm okay now if I leave because the world is right again. But what I want to focus on in the text is what actually happens next when Joseph begins to talk with his family. And he begins to, to, to say some things to them in light of the situation that they're facing. Now, remember what's going on in the text. Jacob's 70, which was just the number, as Mike Bongo told us, to indicate a completeness. All of what Jacob had has moved down to Egypt. They're relocating for long-term residence, which they don't actually know is going to take some 400 years before they'll leave the place of Egypt. They're just thinking for their lifetimes. But they're going to relocate there for a long term. And in order to do that, they're going to have to have a meeting with the head of state uh, and get the final approval so that they can camp out in this area of Egypt's domain. Now, remember, these are common shepherd folks. Uh, they're not used to dealing with matters of state or dealing with dignitaries. And so in this particular case, Joseph wants to give them counsel about how they do that because they're going to be meeting with his boss. And so he shares with them uh, how they need to navigate these circumstances as they enter the royal court. He's going to go ahead of them. He's going to use his influence to kind of uh, soften things up, to pave the way for where things, he wants things to go. But he tells them it's going to be incumbent upon them to say the right things when the questions are asked. And so what he does is he gives them wise counsel. What is the goal of Joseph's intent and his his giving words of wisdom. What we know the goal is that he wants them to get good pasture land because they have livestock and they're shepherds. And he wants them to hang out in this specific region of Egypt. And, and there seems to be a cultural thing, not, not from archaeology that we know, but because of Joseph's day, whatever the attitude was, uh, Joseph is going to use that knowledge to guide his family so they end up in this region somewhat isolated from the broader Egyptian life. We're not specifically sure why he made the exact statements that he made. Perhaps the first one was to ensure that Goshen was the place they ended up in. And the second one was to let the Pharaoh know that although Egypt had had some not so good experiences with foreigners coming in previously, that his family, although foreigners and going to take up long-term residence, would present no problems for the Egyptian economy or for anything that Pharaoh would have to deal with. There was going to be no societal problems out of this family. They just wanted to come set up residence, and live their life peacefully. Whatever the case may have been, Joseph used his influence and his knowledge of Egyptian culture to help his family navigate this because whatever happens in the court is going to have ramifications on the lives of his family. And we know from earlier in the text at the beginning of the chapter, verses 2 through 4, that this was God's very intent. And so Joseph becomes the means by which God's purposes are accomplished for Israel's family. We might ask from the text, why did Joseph do this? And I believe from the surrounding text, that which preceded it, that what's going on in the text, and that which follows, the evidence is clear. Joseph loves his family. And so out of love, he counsels them so that they might end up with a successful turn of events 
in their life. And that's simply the point that I want to raise from the text for us today, that we ought to share wisdom with others as an act of love. We ought to share wisdom with others as an act of love. So let's start off. First of all, let's get on the same page. What is wisdom? Let me offer to you two dictionary definitions. The Lexham Theological Word Book defines wisdom this way. Wisdom is the quality of discerning what is true, what is ethically right, and what should be done in different situations. Wisdom involves both knowledge and the ability to use knowledge. And from a biblical point of view, wisdom also assumes righteous behavior, kindness, faithfulness, and loyalty. The New Bible Dictionary sums up wisdom this way. Basically, wisdom is the art of being successful, of forming the correct plan to gain the desired results. That's wisdom. With a statement, though, that I've made, that what I've indicated to you that I want you to do and for myself to take advice and do that, share wisdom with others, there is a presumption that I have included in that, and that is that you possess wisdom or you at least know how to obtain it. Now, that might be one among us, or maybe there's one online who's watching, where there might be the case that you yet have to grasp wisdom. And so for, the, for your sakes, let me address how it is from a biblical perspective that we obtain wisdom. Scripture get, actually gives us a variety of places we can obtain wisdom from. Uh, if we were look, to look at scriptures like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Proverbs 9, 9, and similar other texts like that, we would find out that wisdom can be gained through education. If we were to look in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3, Proverbs, and then kind of verses 6 through 23, and then at the end of Proverbs chapter 30, kind of the latter part there, 21 through 23, that those texts remind us that wisdom can also be acquired by observing other people's lives and noticing the outcomes of what happens because of the decisions they make. For instance, in the Sir John Franklin's expedition, others watched the decisions that he made, being ill-prepared. They then learned from that. They gained wisdom, and then they were able to make a better decision as a result of observing his life, not having to experience it for themselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 through 28, let us also know that wisdom can be gained from observing nature. This is why uh, the Proverbs tell us to the lazy person, hey, look, look at the ant and see how the ant works diligently and prepares because they know that winter is coming. And now we, we have different things in life that allow us to get away from the weather, but he's talking about those hard times in life when things are not readily available. It's better to prepare while things are going well so when the hard times come, you're able to handle those hard times. There's a wisdom that we can see in nature. And then Proverbs 1, 8 and 31, 1 through 9 remind us there is also wisdom to be gained from one's parents who possess wisdom. And in those cases, at least often in Proverbs, uh, the parents' wisdom is about not only how to, to work in the world, but often about how to engage in relationships with others that, so that you can be successful and choose the right people and avoid relationships that would be a detriment in your life. So those are some of the sources that we can gain wisdom from. But the Bible wants us to be clear that there is one main source of wisdom, and that is God. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 sums it up well for us when it says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Now, this is not an idea that just started in Proverbs many years before Job, uh, in that Eastern mindset, not even uh, of the people of God, echoed the same sentiment when he said this, with God or wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. And that same idea was echoed into the ages past, the time of Proverbs, when Daniel, in a prayer after God had answered his prayer for wisdom, said this to God, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. I want to focus on what he says at the end of that part. This is not the end of his prayer, but the end of that part of the verse. Because Daniel alerts us something to actually truth about God that is relevant to us to help us better understand God's wisdom. And what Daniel says there in the text or alludes to is that God knows everything, that there's nothing hidden from him. Notice he reveals the things that are in the darkness and the light dwells with him. That is, in both cases, God has knowledge of what's going on. There's nothing hidden from him. When we come to the end of Job's book at the last few chapters, in verse chapters 38 through 41, as humans have been trying to reason out what's going on in Job's life, God finally appears to address Job because Job, as a righteous man, has asked for an audience with God, and God kindly decides to answer that request. But it doesn't go like Job thinks it's going to go. He thinks he's going to stand before God and, and, and ask God all his questions and God is going to answer him. But God shows up and turns the tables on Job. God does the questioning and Job does the answering. But in that process of doing that, God takes a few moments to alert Job to something that he has forgotten or at least might be unaware of. And that is the fact that God's knowledge is limitless. And because of that, his wisdom is surpassed anything that we can see as he discusses how he runs the world in view a few vignettes or snapshots of what he actually has to do on a daily basis. And it's that thought that Jesus reiterates when he talks about us being confident as God's people with God, God's knowledge. Jesus said this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all number. When was the last time you took time to count the hairs on your head? What Jesus is getting at here is simply the fact that the things that we often deem as insignificant in life, we wouldn't even take time to spend any time doing it. God knows. He's aware of it. There's nothing that escapes his attention. And so thankfully, uh, God took time to remind me of this by way of a real life example, just to to nudge me in that direction, to, to remember that this is what's happening. So on Tuesday of this week, I, I went out for lunch. I decided to go to Giant. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to have. And that just tells you one of the blessings we have in America. We can choose what we want to eat. And I was struggling about what I would eat that day. And I decided, you know, I'm just going to go to Giant and grab a few things. So I'm at Giant, and I'm making my way around and say hello to Pastor James and Harry as they made their way to the Chinese bar and, and are heading out uh, to eat with their food, excited 
and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to have. And so I'm picking up a few things, grab some nuts, grab some yogurt. I'm like, ah, I'm just going to have this today. And, and on my way out, there's that impulse section, you know, the one right by the register, where they put all the stuff that's really bad for you, but it tastes real good to you, that stuff. So I'm looking over there, right, and I notice this little red uh, box. Um, and it's Barnum's Animal Crackers. And for a moment, my childhood comes back to me. And I remember the taste of those animal crackers. And I think to myself, you know, I'd like to have some Barnum's animal crackers. But as I was thinking about it and I was looking there and I'm just in the aisle, no one's around. I'm just looking at the animal crackers and I'm working through my mind. I, I remembered, you know what, that evening I was going out with my family for dinner. So I was like, you know what, let me save those calories. I'm going to have a chance to get something better at dinner. So I'm going to pass on the animal crackers now. And so I, I went on with my day. I made my purchase. I made my way back to the church and continued working and Gave it no other thought. Wednesday, I decided not to take lunch because I had a good momentum working and decided just to work through the day. On Thursday, Thursday rolled around. And Thursday morning, I'm working on the message. And I'm taking time to think about what's going on. And I'm writing. And, and, and while I'm writing, there's a on my door. And so I look up through my little window, and, and there's the face of Grace with her mask on. And she's like, can I bother you for a second? And I'm like, okay. She's like, I know you're working on this sermon, but I, I want to give you something. And she produces in her hand, not a box, but a bag, a red bag of Barnum's Animal Crackers. Now, this is where the story gets interesting, right? So I take that bag, right, and I'm extremely excited about munching on those little crackers. But then I ask her about how this came about. So Grace begins to share the story from her end and how it transpired for her. She had actually not come to work that day with any intentions of buying anything. She didn't even know that she was going to be going to the store, but when she arrived at church on that particular day, as we do, as our children's ministry workers so faithfully do, they prepare for the weekend so that things are in place as they should be. And so Bethel was going to get out, go out to get some supplies for children's ministry this weekend. And as she was doing that, she said to Grace, hey, why don't you come with me and help me so that we can do this quicker? And so they, they head out. And they go to, actually to Sam's to, to find the supplies. But as they're at Sam's, they notice that everything on the list is not able to be obtained there. So they say, well, you know, Walmart is right next there. Let's go there to finish off the list. So they go to Walmart. And they end up at a Walmart. And as they're making their way through the aisles looking for stuff for children's ministry, Grace's eye catches a bag. And as she catches the eye on that red bag, a conversation that had happened months ago pops into her mind out of the blue. And she remembers that Pastor Ben likes animal crackers. And a thought occurs to her in that moment, wouldn't it be nice to show some love towards him today as he's working on the sermon and buy this bag of animal crackers for him? She picks it up and she brings it to work. Now, if Grace had done that on an often basis, it would not have been nothing. I would have just thought nothing of it because I would have said to myself, this always happens. This is just Grace. Every day she's buying snacks and things for people. This just always happens. This, but this was just one of those rare occurrences. Grace was not with me on Tuesday. She was not in Giants. She did not know. But God knew. And he was taking account because what God was reminding me of is the fact that he knows everything. That is the reality of it. Now, how does this relate to God's wisdom? The reason I tell you that story is because I want us to consider something about God's wisdom. 
Every time that God makes a decision, if we can use that from a human standpoint, a human way of thinking about God, because that's the way we have to wrap our minds around the way God operates us, to think about it in terms of how we operate. But if God makes decisions, that means that every time God makes a decision, he always makes decisions with all knowledge. There's never a time when God makes a decision without knowing something. And there's the secret. God has wisdom. It is an attribute. Now, why is that relevant? Because we as humans, every time we make a decision, and I mean every time, we always make decisions without full knowledge. There's always something we don't know. We're always having to make decisions by faith because there's always something we're not sure of in the world around us. If you will, if I were to illustrate this to bring the point home, I would simply ask you to think about your life Reflect on the decisions you made and think about some choices that have happened in the past. And there probably might be one, perhaps two, in your life if you were to reflect on them now, that if you had the knowledge then that you have now, you would have made a different decision. Because you lacked some knowledge. But God, never the case. Every time he makes a decision is with all knowledge. And that is why the scriptures describe that his works are always done in wisdom. And thus the true path that leads to wisdom must always begin with God. That's why the writer of Proverbs said at the beginning of the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then you see that reiterated again in Proverbs 9, 10, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I like the way the Bible project sums up the fear of the Lord here in the book of Proverbs. They say there, it is the healthy respect of God's definition of good and evil. And true wisdom means learning those boundary lines and not crossing them. And that's why when we see in scriptures two examples like Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and Daniel in chapter 2, when there is a need for wisdom, they ask God. And so James, the apostle, Jesus' half-brother in the flesh by Mary, says to believers, when you are in a difficult time, this is what you ought to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. When you find yourself in a place where you need wisdom, turn to the source of wisdom. Ask God. But how will you know when you have it? It's one thing to ask for it. It's another thing to get it, right? I can ask you to borrow your car. Doesn't mean I'm going to get it, though. (laughs) Right? It's another thing for me to be driving down the street in your car. But what James says is that God is generous. And if you ask him, he's so kind, he'll place it. But how will you know when you have it? Well, there's two examples in Scripture, I think, that that give us uh, the example of how will we know when we have it. So let me turn to Jesus and look at the text here. Uh, This is a text when Jesus returns to his own hometown. Notice what it says. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Peter says something similar in his writings about Paul. Notice what he says. And count patient the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So the way that you'll know that you have wisdom is that others will see it 
in your life by the decisions that you make. Think about how we operate in our lives. Isn't that how we function? When we recognize that someone has wisdom, we seek those people out about those particular matters. The reason why I attended a Financial Peace University class is because I believe that Dave Ramsey has some wisdom about how to handle money. And I went to hear that wisdom. And I would believe that you probably operate in the exact same way as I do. Depending on what matter or subject matter it is, you seek out those you believe who know who have knowledge and know how to put that knowledge to use. That's wisdom. Now, once you have it, once you've gained it, what should you do with it? Well, as a Christian, I would encourage you, as I stated at the beginning, to share that wisdom with others. Let me offer you three reasons of why I would encourage you to do that. For one thing, wisdom has the potential to help people make better decisions. I was reminded of this this week as I was reading a book. I'm reading this book on church, church doctrine by Dr. David Instone Brew, and he told this little story in the opening of one of the chapters. He talked about this event that happened back in the 1700s. Uh, and in the 1700s, of course, you remember Benjamin Franklin invented it, the lightning rod, 1752. And the Pope at that time, in light of that invention of science, recommended that the churches use those lightning rods and put them on the spires of their churches. He thought that that was a good thing. That was a wise thing to do. The churches, well, many of them refused. And here was their reasoning. They believed that if they put the lightning rod up, it would interfere with God's sovereign freedom to strike down sinners with lightning. And they didn't want to get in God's way of striking down sinners who were behaving badly. So instead, they came up with a better idea. They would have someone go up during the lightning storm and ring the metal bell when the lightning was happening so that it might call people to prayer and ward off the lightning. Can you guess what the result of that was? <laughs> yes, Germany actually recorded some results for us, and in their churches, at least three people died by lightning strikes each year on average. In 1769, though, things changed, and here's why. In Italy, in St. Nazir, Brescia, Italy, specifically that specific city, something happened. During a lightning storm, the lightning struck the church because it did not have a lightning rod on it. And in that particular church, they had, I don't know why, I didn't research why this was the case. In their vaults, there was a hundred tons of gunpowder. When the lightning struck the church, it ignited the gunpowder. There was a massive explosion. 3,000 people's lives were taken and one-sixth of the city was decimated. Do you know what churches did after that? They put lightning rods on the spires of their churches. Because as Proverbs indicates, those who operate with wisdom tend to generally do better in life than those who do not. Which brings me to my second reason. Sharing wisdom with others can be an expression of love, as we see with Joseph. I believe that's exactly what he's doing. He loves his family, and so he counsels them with the wisdom that God has given him so that they might have a good life. As I considered this, I thought this is really just a practical application of Jesus's command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And wisdom helps us do that because it helps us to help others make better decisions in life. Consider God's own actions toward us. Look at this book you have in your hand. God has taken time to have his wisdom written down and shared 
with us so that every time we need it, all we simply have to do is turn a page and read. But there's something even more that God has done. Not only did he share with us his written word, he has shared himself fully in the revelation of his son, the living word, Jesus Christ. We see that when we connect two scriptures together. John 3.16, you remember that scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, who is that son? I like the way Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. But to those who call both Jews and Greeks, and we would fit into that Greek kind of category, that is, those who are not Jewish, Christ, the power of God, and notice what he says about Christ, the wisdom of God. When the son was shared, the wisdom of God was shared with us. That brings me to my third and final reason. Lastly, sharing wisdom with others is a matter of discipleship. Think about the command at the end of Matthew's Gospels. Let me read it to you. You know it. You probably have it memorized. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to focus on, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. As we saw, one of the ways we can gain wisdom is through education, right? It's through learning. Jesus says in John chapter 7 that his teaching is not his own teaching. That what he says, what he communicated during his life ministry, he got it from someone else. And who was that someone else? The Father in heaven. Jesus says, I'm only communicating to you what the Father has told me. So that means that whatever Jesus said is always wise because he was only saying what he heard from the Father. And as we know, God is the source of wisdom. So that means that everything that Jesus said was wise. So when we share that wisdom that Jesus has communicated with us, we're sharing God's wisdom, which ultimately lets people know the way of wisdom. Now, how do we share wisdom with others? There's a variety of ways. You can do it through instruction. You can do it through counsel. You can do it in moments of guidance. You can give advice when it's asked for or when they're able to hear it. And you can share knowledge when others are asking you or looking for it. It can be done in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's done at the kitchen table. Sometimes it's done over the phone. Sometimes it's done as you drive. Sometimes it's done as you're just standing around having a cup of coffee or tea together and you're talking and you share wisdom in those moments. But there's another way as well. And that was from one of the other ways wisdom is gained. If you live a wise life, that is a life that honors God, focused on Christ, and filled with the Spirit, then you become a lesson of wisdom to those who are watching your life. And believe you me, somebody's watching. Let me close with this. There's one other idea that I want to raise from the text related to this topic. So in the text where we see in the way the situation is playing out, Joseph is preparing his family to meet with the king of Egypt because the king of Egypt has the authority to decide whether or not Joseph's family will end up dwelling in the land. Something similar is going on with humans. We all have a meeting with the king, but it's not the king who dwells on earth. It is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the very one that we sang about today. And he has the authority to decide whether or not you will dwell in the land. What land is that? The new heavens and the new earth. And it is in light of that that Scripture offers us wisdom. Now, the Scripture gives us wisdom about many things in life. 
But the one thing that I want to focus on here at the end is the most important wisdom that we have at our disposal to share with others. Why do I want to remind you that you have this in your, uh, uh, at your disposal, in your repertoire of knowledge of wisdom? Because what you have to share with them will impact their life on earth and their eternal destiny afterwards. It is the most important thing you can do because it is wise to live a life with relationship with God instead of the option to live a life without a relationship with God. So we share this message about Christ with others because that is what is the greatest wisdom we have to offer. And what is our message? Peter sums it up when he goes to Cornelius' house, and this is what he said. He said that beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And the apostles became witnesses of all that he had done. They were there observing, watching what he did in the area of the Jews as well as in Jerusalem. But then the Jewish leaders put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God, three days later, raised him from the dead and made him to appear to those apostles. Not to all people, but to the apostles and disciples who had been chosen by God to be his witnesses, as we see in the book of Acts. And what's so marvelous about that is that they ate and drank with him to see that he really had been raised from the dead. And then Jesus commanded those apostles, which came down to us, to go out into the world and to preach to people to testify that he has been the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And if you were to search the prophets, the prophets would point you directly to Jesus because in Jesus, by believing in him, everyone who would put their faith in him will receive forgiveness of their sins through his name. That's the message that we have. And when we tell others about that message, we do exactly what wisdom is all about. We help them to know what is true. We help them to know what is ethically right. And we help them to know what is the right thing to do in light of their human situation with sin. See, what we share the message of Christ, it is the greatest wisdom that we have at our disposal. So as you're sharing the wisdom about other things, don't forget this in the process. Because that will change people's lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you have been so generous and kind. Lord, you were under no obligation to share your wisdom with us. And yet you have through the written word and the living word. And for that, we express our gratitude. Father, may we emulate you as we go out into the world this week. Lord, if we're standing by the, the coffee pot this week and someone is asking a question, may we remember your word that is relevant to that situation and share wisdom with others so that they might make better decisions in their lives. And God, as you present us with opportunities to invest in people, the goodness of the truth about what you have done in Christ, help us to convey that, realizing that that is the greatest wisdom we have to offer to a world that is separated from you so that humans might live the way you intended as we were sitting there Lord as we were singing worshiping through song offering up the praise of our lips I was reminded God that this was what we were created to do so thank you Lord for all of those who you have given that wisdom to who are in this room today and Lord help us 
to convey what you have shared with us with others because freely we have received and so freely we give. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll sing our final song and we'll just